Well, good morning. Well, I've not had the pleasure of meeting you yet. My name is Neil Davidson. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Chapel, and I'm going to have the privilege of bringing a word today. And if you happen to be a guest today, I'd love to extend a couple invitations to you. First of all, I would love to have the privilege of meeting you before you leave, so I'll make myself accessible in the, in the lobby after the service is over, and hopefully you'll swing by and shake a hand and introduce yourself, and we'll give you a little gift for going through the pain of doing that and so you can take with you as you, as you leave. And then also, um, if you're new to the, newer to Hope Chapel, I'd really love to invite you to stay and have lunch with me. We actually, once a month, we do a, what we call a Q&A with the pastors, just a light luncheon. We just answer some questions and provide some information and that kind of thing. Help you just kind of maybe see if this is the place you want to settle in. And, and so if you're able to stay and would like to stay, we'd love to have you stay with us. And if you have kids, they can go to the kids' party. And they can be a part of that, and they can come and, and, and you can be a part with us. So anyways, but thanks for being here today. Um, so we launched a new series in the book of James last week. And we did so with a very specific goal or intent. We know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ... For those of us who, who appreciate the resurrection, understand that God raised Jesus physically from the dead and he's living for eternity now in heaven, we understand that that unleashed a new opportunity in our lives as God's people. There, there, the, the scripture talks about the power of the resurrection being available in our lives and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives makes a whole new kind of living available to us. And we've been asking the question, what kind of faith does it take to make sure we really live out that opportunity? What is the real the kind of faith that really leads us to be a people who don't take any of the opportunity that the resurrection provides to us and leave it behind, but somehow or another we plug in and tap into all of it? And we've turned to the book of James for a couple of reasons. One of those, and, and is, is, as I stated last week, is that James, who we believe to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, that means he had the same mother, Mary, different father. Jesus had God as his father, right? And, and, and then there's Joseph with the rest of, the, of his siblings. Same mother, different father. His half-brother, James, who throughout his earthly life was a skeptic related to Jesus. Every time we see him in the Gospels, he was like, I don't know, and he's begging Jesus to come home and, you know, hey, we'll get you some medication. You can settle down. You can be happy in the carpentry shop with the rest of us kind of idea. And, and, we, and we see all of this. And then, but after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to his half-brother, James becomes an ardent follower of Jesus Christ. And he actually becomes the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. So James, probably outside of the Apostle Paul, is the guy who was the most impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Great guy to listen to when we're going to be asking the question, how is it that you and I really live out resurrection power? The second reason we're we're really drawn to the book of James is because James was probably the first book written in the New Testament. So it gives us this glimpse into the early church as they struggled to try to take the teachings of Jesus and translate those into the way that they were actually living their everyday lives. So a great place for us to look as as we see, and we get this early window into how they're trying to take faith and make it practical, how they're trying to take the implications of the resurrection and make sure that they really live it out. They experience it. And lastly, it's because we see in the book of James so many allusions to the teaching of Jesus. 
You know, Jesus had talked about how life was supposed to be like, the way you're supposed to live it, what God really meant by the law, right? And, and he, so he talks about building your house on your life on the rock. And they're trying to figure out how to do that. And we see that in the illusions of the teachings that James has. And so the book of James has been a great place for us to turn. I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of James. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We should be one right underneath your chair or underneath the chair in front of you. And, uh, and, and we're in James chapter 2 today. And if you didn't happen to bring a Bible and you're using one of our, our pew Bibles, uh, James is over in the back of your New Testament. And you can find our passage for today beginning on page 1025. 1,025. Now, last week, we started in James 1. Now, we're taking big chunks of Scripture, and we're doing that on purpose. And, and last week, what we really looked at was that, that James said, the kind of faith that takes the resurrection of Jesus and turns it into our actual experience in following after Christ is the type of faith that takes the lemons that life offers us, the trials, the tribulations, the temptations, takes those things and runs them through the endurance test. And by having a faith that actually does something, that we do it, what it produces in us is spiritual maturity. We become the people that we can be because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've looked at the fact that, that authentic faith, real faith, takes life and uses it as an opportunity to grow in Christ. But today we're going to shift gears. Because here, James begins to kind of unpack what does it really mean to, to live life in the real world. All right, yeah, you're dealing with all the dynamics that go on and et cetera, and you're struggling with all that stuff, and, and you're trying to use each of those as an opportunity to get better. But what, what about living out some of these truths in our lives? And, and that's when we got to James chapter 2. So what I want to do is I want to read through the book, uh, all of chapter 2. I'll make a few comments as we go along. So I really think it's helpful for you to follow along. So if you haven't grabbed a Bible or swiped along in your phone or tablet or whatever to get to James 2, I think it'd be great. And I'm going to be reading now the exact same translation as the books that are, your Bibles that are in the pew. So if you have a little different terminology, you'll know why, because uh, you may be using a different translation. Then we're going to come back and we're going to take a major detour for a little while, all right? So we're going to have to go the long way around, and then we're going to come back to our text and really look at the dynamic that's a part of doing faith in a real way before God. So he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, he's connected, I'm one of you guys, right? Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example... A man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. This is the, this is the, the status symbols of the, of the wealthy in those days, those who, who had what they needed. It's like, you know, we might have, a, you know, do not, um, for, he, he, we might use today, for example, a man drives into your parking lot in their Porsche, right? Or they, they drive in in their, their, their uh, Maserati, right? Or their Ferrari, right? Uh, this is obviously a person who can afford to spend a house payment on a car, right? And so when, when they arrive, right, he says, when a, an example, a man wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit there on the floor by my footstool. 
Or if we might say, hey, you know what? We got special parking right here for the visitors. You park right there, the guy in the, in the Porsche. You with the jalopy, that we're not, or out behind the barn, if you will. We don't want to be able to see it, right? If, you, if you're doing that kind of stuff, it says, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You are using an evil process to evaluate the worth of people who are standing before you. It says, listen, my dear brothers. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. So part of his argument says you shouldn't show favoritism because if you favor the rich, you favor a certain type of people that you like or you're impressed by or whatever, you may actually be working against the agenda of God. God has a soft spot for the poor, right? God has a, a desire to bless the poor. And when you're, when you're slapping the rich guy on the back and trying to push the poor guy out of the way so nobody sees him, he says you could actually be working against the agenda of God. Look in verse 6 that we pick up. It says, yet you dishonored that poor man. It says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? So part of what he's saying, well, and it might not even be wise for you to favor the rich. Because the rich, when they turn on you, they have all the means possible to really do you in. And we've seen that happen. And again, remember, James is teaching in Jerusalem where all the authorities were trying to crush the church. It had already led to James, the, son of, the brother of John, being martyred for his faith. They had tried to do the same thing to Peter, and James is teaching in this place. You know, the, the rich guys, the ones who have arrived, they have all the status. They, those guys are trying to destroy you, and yet somehow or another, you're looking up to them rather than looking up to those who might not have all that they have to offer financially. And then he picks up in verse 8. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. I don't know if it could be stated any simpler than that. Indeed, if you keep the royal law, a law that comes from God, right, and it's prescribed in the Scriptures, taught clearly, Old Testament and New, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet falls in one point, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. So he's using an argument here. What he's saying is that because the law, and you have, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, you got all, you got all these different laws, but because the law all has its one source, being God, the law is a unified whole. So if you break one, it's like you broke it all, right? And I use the image in my mind, you, you, you know, we're getting to the season where you're going to start pulling out your beach equipment, right? You know, if you blow up a, you know, your, your swim raft, you know, and you get it nice and full, if it has one hole in it, eventually you're going to get wet, right? And, and that's the imagery he's using. You, 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 it, it may look beautiful. It may be great, but you got one hole in it, <laughs> one hole in your keeping of the law, eventually you're going to get wet. You're going to sink because it all comes from one God. You've got to keep it all. And Because they're, they're saying, well, you know, hey, we're, we're, 
we, we love some people. You know, the rich people deserve to be loved too, whatever. You, say, you know, you, you got you to love them all. And if you fail in loving some because you're focused on loving others, then you've broken it all. And you're not doing well as you look at verse 8. So here's speak and act as those who will be as though speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment's without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he's saying is that if God has poured his mercy into your heart, it overrules all that other kinds of stuff, and, and, and you land up treating all people with the grace and honor and respect and the love that God has shown to us. And when we don't do that, we show that we are people who really haven't experienced the mercy of God. Verse 14. We're getting there. Hold on, all right? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it isn't, in the same way faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. So he has this image, you come across a person who's, who's shaken on the verge of hypothermia, they're starving to death and they got no place to go, and you're really nice to them, but when you leave, they're just as cold and they're just as hungry, and they're just as lost without a place to go as when you got there. He says, what good is that kind of love? He says, in the same way, if that's the way your faith works, what good is it? But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith, and I've got works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. So your conviction or your creed is not sufficient because you could believe the exact same things as the evil spirits, and that doesn't mean that you're any closer to God than they are. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now this is a reference back to a story in the book of Genesis, right? Abraham had waited an adult lifetime to have this promised son who was Isaac. And, and, and just when it seems like the promises of God were all ready to be fulfilled, God said, you know what? I want you to take your son, go to this mountain over here, the mountain where they eventually built the temple, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Put him on an altar, slit his throat, light it up, and give him back to me. And Abraham sought to do so. God didn't let him do it, but he offered up his son on the altar. You see that faith, verse 22, was active together with works, and by works, faith was perfected. So scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. What a great title to have, huh? Don't we sing a song called You Are the Friend of God? It's been a long time, right? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute? What? The 
prostitute, also justified by works when we should receive the messengers and sent them out by a different route. And this is a reference to the story of of an account that took place in the book of Joshua. The people are ready to go into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan River. They come up on a city by the name of Jericho. They're trying to figure out how to capture the city. They send some spies into it. Word seeps out. There's some Israelites looking around. And so they're, they're, you know, they're scouring the city looking for them. And Rahab, who's not high on the social elite status because she's a prostitute, she takes them in and she hides them. And because of that, they're able to escape through a window out and down and get away and bring back a report. And it was in the same way, it says, she was justified. She be, she, the door was open for her to enter into the people of God because she received the messengers by the works that she did. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So we need to take a detour. Okay? I want to come back to our text to make some applications to us about real or authentic faith, the type of faith. But we need to take a detour. And, and here's why we need to take a detour. Often the questions that the text creates for us serve as a distraction as to what the text is really supposed to mean to us. Now let that settle in for a minute. Sometimes the text creates questions for us, and we get distracted by those. Well, how does that fit? with? And and when we're doing that, we're so distracted by, how does this all fit together? I don't make sense. I don't understand it, whatever. How do we make that work? How do we fit it? So we need to clear up the distractions so we can get back to what it is that James is challenging us with. And so for a while here, we need to do a little sledding, a little walking in some deep waters of theology, right? So in the first service, I, I rolled up my paint legs as a symbolism that we're, we're going to be walking through the, the deep water of theology here for a few minutes. And, um, and this is one of those moments in church life where you are, should feel free to elbow the person next to you if they start to fall asleep. Because we're going to deal with some stuff that gets a little touch feel. Yeah. Give you an example, right? Last week, I had three, it might have been four, but I think there were at least three people who said, all right, you've got to help me here a little bit. We, we just studied in James 1 that God doesn't tempt anybody. If God doesn't tempt anybody, why are we praying the Lord's prayer? Lord, lead me not into temptation, right? I mean, if God doesn't lead us into temptation, that's what James says, why are we praying that God shouldn't lead us into temptation? And we get distracted by that. Obviously, the whole point of James is we're responsible for our own sin. If we, if we give in to temptation, it's our fault. It's not God's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's our fault. And we're responsible for our own sin. But how, so, and there is the way that I don't think temptation, as Jesus is using it in the Lord's Prayer, is the same temptation as James is talking about. I think it's much more about trials and difficulties and hardships that can make us want to abandon God or distract us from God. I also think it is a, it is a prayer to say, God, you know, I know that I can, be, you know, I, can, I can find my way into the passage. Would you just give me the wisdom to walk around temptation? So I don't think there's any contradiction between any of those things. But we have the same kind of problem today when we deal with this text. And here is the problematic text for us, right? And, and this is the passage of Scripture that made Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, hate the book of James. Well, maybe hate's a little strong term, but he would have just preferred that it not be in the New Testament at all, all right? And it's this phrasing right in here. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Martin Luther would say, because you know, we are justified by faith, right? And it's only by faith. 
As James quotes here, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Works doesn't have anything to do with it, right? And he hated this passage of scripture because it could lead to so many dangerous places. And then you read along and and talks about Rahab. It comes down to the end. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And, And what happens is that James stands all by himself in the book of the New Testament against all of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And Paul, over and over again, is just hammering on faith alone. It's faith alone. It's not works. It's not law. It's not merit. It's not performance. It's God's grace. It's what Jesus did. It's not what we do. He's hammering on that through Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians. And you go right on down the line. He's just hammering all that stuff. And then you put them up alongside James, and they look totally different. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this next slide. All right? So... You look at these two passages of Scripture, and they, they don't look the same. So, you know, you got, therefore, having been justified by faith, this is Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God to our Lord Jesus Christ. But then you come over to James, and you get justified by works and not by faith alone. Having been justified by faith, justified by works. Hmm. Right? And then you go further down. James, Paul talks about, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It's God's gift. Not from works. Not a single thing that you and I do. But it is so that none of us can boast. But somehow you get over to James and he says that faith without works is dead. And so we get it, we're confronted with all these questions, right? And we get distracted from what he's really trying to teach us. But part of it is that you and I really need to know how these pieces fit together because our faith deserves a firm foundation. If we're going to build on the rock, we've got to know why the rock is immovable. And we need to know how these pieces fit together. That how you can be, have faith and works, if you will, how Paul and James can live together in the same book, right? And not be at contract contradiction to one another. Because if not, and this is, this is where a lot of us, a lot of people wrestle, right? It's like, all right, you know, I know I was, I was with a friend of mine in a coffee shop, or I was going to a life group, or I've been reading my Bible for a long time, and, and, and I know I, I prayed to ask God to forgive me of my sins, and, and for Jesus to come into my life, and I promised to live a life by faith, but and so, and, and I did that, so I, I, I know I'm saved, but then I reason like that. Am I, am I doing enough stuff to make sure I'm really saved? And, 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 and am I right with God, or maybe God doesn't really love me, or is mad at me, whatever, you know, am I isolated? And we get all confused, right? And we start to feel insecure in our relationship with God, and that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to have certainty and conviction. And so I want to spend just a minute trying to make these two things live together so we can get back to what the text really talks about. And here's the first thing. We need to understand when we look at these words, justification, they are not using them with the same definition, right? They looks the same in English, doesn't it? But you'll notice actually in your Bibles that you have out from underneath your seats, in the Holman Christian, they don't actually translate Romans 5, 1 that way. They say, when we have been declared righteous by faith, right? And so for... Paul, when he's using the word justification, 
He's really talking about the process of redemption by which you and I are declared righteous. It's a redemptive term. It's in the context of being moved out of darkness into God's light, to move from unrighteousness to righteousness, right? He's using this. That's not, what, that's not how James is using it. What James is using it, as you look at in our text, in James chapter 2, he's using the term of saying, Abraham demonstrated or proved or verified or vindicated, gave an example of his faith by what he did. It wasn't about earning God's salvation, but it's by, that he demonstrated the reality of his faith. Right? So one is in the idea of what God does to move us from this side of the board to this side of the board. And what James is talking about is how you and I let God's light shine in us so that men can see our good deeds. See our good deeds. Abraham showed his good deed. Because he offered up Isaac. And so it's in that. And, and he's, so they're, they're not the same thing at all. And there is no conflict. Gets a little harder when we get to the faith and works thing. So we move to the next slide here. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, churches love to quote this all the time, right? For it's by grace that you are saved by faith. You know, it, it, you know, it is, the, is the gift of God, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. We, we hammer on that. And what, what Paul was at fighting here is he's fighting this idea of, yeah, 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 you've got to believe in God, but you've got you, you to keep the Sabbath, and you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to do, you know, you've you got you to, you know, kiss the Torah. You've got to do all this other stuff to make sure that they're all... And, and he's like, no, 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 no. If that stuff of keeping the law had been feasible, if we could do it, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. And so when it comes to receiving eternal life, being able to make sure that when we die, it's just a transition to a place that's way better than with anything we've ever experienced, lasting for eternity, it doesn't have anything to do with works. It has all to do with faith. And works has nothing to do with it. It is by grace, it is by faith that we are saved by grace. So eternal life is received as a free gift, not as a result of anything that you and I do. Now, how does that compare with James when he says that we are justified by works or, or faith without works is useless or dead? And we see this on the next slide. See, James isn't debating the question of faith and works. He's debating kind of the kind of question of what kind of faith is actually a saving faith, Right? He's not talking about, okay, what do I have to do in order for God to love me enough so that Jesus can forgive me and I can go to heaven? That's not what he's talking about. He, he's not talking about faith and works. What he's talking about is that there is a faith or there's something that masquerades as faith, and you're just as lost and just as dead, just as, as far from God with that kind of faith, because that's what the demons, the demons, the demons have the right creed, but they're far from God. Or there's a saving faith, right? And that saving faith will produce a fruit. That light will shine and your deeds will be evident. And so he's talking about the nature of the type of faith that actually leads to salvation by grace in Christ. Is that making sense at all? Let me, let me, I'll demonstrate this just a little bit. I'm going to call Christine up here for a minute. She was terrified in the first service, but now she knows what's going to happen, right? So, 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 
Imagine James and Paul. They're, they're actually standing back to back, and they're in the middle of the war, and they're fighting the battle, right? Anyway, you know, they're fighting the battle. But Paul, <laughs> Paul is fighting an enemy that wants to say it's a works-based salvation. You're going to do one, two, three, four, and five, and then you can be saved. You know, or if you're saved, you know, if you're mixing enough works, keeping the law, doing it, then, then you climb the hill high enough, you're out. That's not the battle James is facing, right? He's facing an attack that's coming from a different direction, and here's their weapon they're using. Once you've said the prayer, once you've been dunked in the baptistry, there's nothing anybody, including God, can do to you. So you can't tell me to do nothing when it comes to faith. Because I believe in Jesus. And I've walked the aisle. I said the prayer. I've been baptized. And nobody can tell me I'm not going to heaven. And you can't tell me I have to do anything in order to represent Christ. They call that antinomianism. I can't spell it. I think I pronounced it right. Which is to say, you know, there is, there is, once you're in, in Christ, there is no law. And, and therefore, everything is okay. And James is saying, that's not the kind of faith that saves. Because the kind of faith that saves is the faith that wants to work at fulfilling the royal law of love, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So now I can unroll my sleeves because we're going to get back into the text, my my pant legs, right? I'm glad my socks had no holes in them today. So let's come back. So we've been on this long detour, right, trying to get the distracting questions aside, and we come back to the text where where James is saying, okay, here, here we have this marvelous faith, and if we, if we live out our faith in real life, we can be a people who arrive at the end where we're unstained by the world on the inside and what we do on the outside and what we say reflect who we are on the inside. That's how he concludes James chapter 1. And he starts right out and saying, the very first place where you're struggling with this is that you continue to look at people and you continue to look at life the same way you did before. He said, if you're going to cling to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you can't show favoritism. You see, our faith, the kind of faith that leads to salvation, the faith that's really alive, right, is a faith that works at, wants to work at, is committed to working at, is excited and thrilled to work at living out the royal law of love, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And when you're doing that, you can't limit it or be discretionary with it. You see what he's saying here? Because he's saying, you know, look at it. You're no different than the world. Certainly, you know, let's put it to some. When somebody walks through the door and you've never heard of them because they've never done anything, how many times do you go up and say, hey, can I have your autograph? Hey, can I take a selfie with you? We don't do that, right? We do that to famous people, right? And, and because we're still attracted to all that. And I'm not trying to criticize that or whatever. I'd love to have a few autographs of my family. I'd love to have a Tom Brady autograph. If any of you guys can come up with one of those, you know, I'll give you a little blessing and, you know, and just kidding. You know, but, 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 but there's still a way where we evaluate the worth of people in a way that is not godly. And, and he's saying when, when you come to valuing and loving people, it needs to be non-discriminatory in the sense of that you need to lay it out on everybody equally, just like God does. Is that making any sense? And he says, that's what real faith does. And, 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 and I think when you look at it, and I didn't say this in the first service, is that, is that part of the way that we figure out 
how great God's love is for us and therefore experience all this new life is because we go out there in a place and say, man, I, I don't have the resources to love this person because they're unlovable. <laughs> right? And as we try, God does these incredible things, right? And so there is this challenge for us to be a people who have a real faith that works at fulfilling the royal law of love. I'm trying to catch up to my pages here. And in that, we love and treat all people equally. So, and you hear echoes of Paul. You know, in Christ, there isn't a Jew and a Greek. In Christ, there isn't male and female. In Christ, there's not free men or slaves. In Christ, there's not rich and poor. There's just people either who need Jesus or people who are on your team to reach people who need Jesus. You have to love all people equally. And that love has to be demonstrated practically. Not just a noun that we keep reserved up in our hearts. It's not just a feel, but love becomes a verb. Such as if you encounter somebody, and they're hungry, and they're freezing to death, and they got no place to go for food and shelter. And you look at them and say, man, I love you, brother. I hope life just turned. I'm going to pray for you. And you walk away, and they're just as hungry, and just as cold, and just as hopeless. So that's not love. Love expresses itself in tangible ways to bless, improve, serve, meet the needs of those that we encounter. Faith or love without works is useless, right? And so I, 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 I come back to these illusions of the teaching of Christ. You know, you can see the good Samaritan in, in the midst of all of this, right? And, and um, it, it's just... It's, so, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful, you know, the guy's lying on the side of the road. He, he needs the help, right? And, and, the, and the religious people are passing by, but it's the enemy, the Samaritan, who actually meets the needs, and he's holding this up to us. And, um, and, and then we, we look at it for ourselves, and, and you know, this, this idea of, like, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Now, the last time I checked, deeds were actions, right? Weren't feelings, weren't just words, kind words. It wasn't just being an encouraging person, but a deed is an action where you actually met a need, you, you took a step. So let your light shine before men. Don't let your faith be useless, so they may see your good deeds See you working out the royal law of love by loving your neighbor as yourself, and by it your father becomes glorified. And I really think part of what he's saying to us is that if we're going to mimic or we're going to live out this faith that taps into all of the power of the resurrection, we have to be a people who's ready to love indiscriminately just like Christ was, and that love has to be shown in what we do, not just what we say. And it really confronts me, and I think it confronts you, and we're going to stop here. It really asks, so like, how is your light shining? Is it on your heart and a part of your daily challenge 
to say, I want my light to shine today so that people see my good deeds and they give credit to the one who raised Jesus and left the tomb empty. How's your light shining? Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot in what we've studied today. Praise the Lord for audio recordings and videos so we can go back and review it as we need to. God, this word today is very challenging. And I think it set expectations that almost all of us in this room appreciate are really hard to fulfill. But it's exactly why it's the kind of thing that you love to do to show your resurrection power. So, Father, equip us today from your word to be people of real faith, people whose light shine in such a way that people actually see our good deeds and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.